You're listening to Hockey to Heroin, the road to recovery on the Hockey Podcast Network. New episodes Wednesdays and Saturdays. Follow Hockey to Heroin on Twitter. That's at Hockey, the number two, heroin for updates and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Ladies and gentlemen. It's majestic and resolute, where you pursue your dreams with hard work, dedication, sacrifice, discipline, and passion. But above all, it's respect for what the ice can do for you. It was always my goal to make it to the NHL. Since I can remember, I wanted to be a hockey player. When you're hot, you're hot. Brady Leobold with his fourth goal of the game. And the Kelowna Rockets having a whole lot of fun tonight. But the ice and all its majesty can hit you back when you least expect it. An injury, my first year pro at 21 years old, led me down a dark path to Oxycontin. Shortly after that, I found myself addicted to heroin and not playing hockey. Demons hide in every corner. They can take everything away from you. Everything you worked so hard to achieve. And before you know it, the demons own you. Ultimately, I became homeless on the streets in Vancouver on Hastings, which is widely known as the worst block in North America. Brady Leovold was on the edge of realizing his dream of playing in the NHL. Then he lost it all to drug addiction. I was hiding a dark secret. These are real stories about pain, loss, and genuine people. The sad truth of it all, success comes with a price. Wanted to die. Many times I was in the psych ward, tried to commit suicide. Welcome to the Hockey to Heroin Road to Recovery podcast with your host, Brady Leovold. Welcome back to another edition of Hockey to Heroin, the road to recovery. This is episode number 52, and you know this is Brady Leovold coming at you guys from Utterson, Ontario, right in beautiful Muskoka. So lucky to live where I live, guys, and I'm very lucky that you are tuning in on this Wednesday, September the 16th, which means it is my son's birthday. Happy 11th birthday, Brody Ron Liebold. I miss you. I love you. Brooklyn, I miss you and love you so much. I hope you guys are doing fantastic, Brody. Happy birthday. Happy, happy, happy birthday, buddy. I miss you like crazy. And uh, I just want both my kids to know that I'm continuing doing the next right thing uh, so that it will allow me to one day uh, be in their lives again. And uh, wow, I just look forward to that day. And I know it might not go as smooth as I, you know, as I hope, but that won't deter me. I will keep doing what I'm doing. I will not relapse. I will not use drugs. I will not live in self-hatred and guilt and all of those emotions because that just keeps me sick. And then I'll never see my kids and everything I have will go away. Um, And that is just not an option for me. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're listening on the Hockey Podcast Network. You could check them out anywhere on social media at HockeyPodNet and their website www.thehockeypodcastnetwork.com. Guys, they have 31 podcasts, one for every single NHL team. Even if you're not one of the three remaining teams left, we have uh, Dallas Stars. The Dallas Stars, captained by my former line mate, Jamie Benn, advancing 
to the Stanley Cup Finals. Congratulations to him and all the members of the Dallas Stars. And it looks like they're going to be facing off against my former team, the Tampa Bay Lightning. However, they still have to get one more W, so who knows? All we know is that Jamie Benn and the Dallas Stars will be competing for Lord Stanley's Cup. And uh, I called Dallas to win the Cup months ago, um, mostly just because Jamie's on the team and I, he was my line mate. However, listen, if Dallas plays the Lightning, it will be Ben versus Shen. <laughs> My two former teammates with the Kelowna Rockets, so that's awesome. It looks like one of my former teammates is going to be raising the Stanley Cup, so that's awesome. So proud of both those guys. Uh, and uh, thank you guys for listening. Like I said, check out the Hockey Podcast Network on social media at HockeyPodNet. Guys, I am not I am not recording in the Matthew Lazinski Memorial Studio. However, I'm in the makeshift Matthew Lazinski Memorial Studio in uh, Diana and Stuart Debit McDonald's a trailer here on the Debit Compound. It's their summer place, and they're allowing me to record in here. So thank you to them. Guys, I got some awesome news. I've been talking to Matthew Lazinski's mom, Nancy, uh, and guess what? Her husband, Peter, Matthew Lazinski's dad, is going to come up and wire the studio. Uh, he is a retired uh, member of uh, Hydro out here in Ontario. And uh, she reached out to me and she wants to come up with Peter and check it out and uh, help me wire up the studio. So that's amazing, guys. The fact that I've been able to connect with Matthew Lazinski's family has been amazing. If you are an avid listener of Hockey to Heroin, The Road to Recovery, you know who Matthew Lazinski is. He was a former Sault Ste. Marie Greyhound, uh, born in the same year as myself in 1987. But we lost Matthew Lazinski in 2017 to a fatal, tragic overdose. I never got to meet him, uh, but a new friend of mine, Matt Thompson, shared this story with me. And since he shared that story, me and him become best friends. You know the story. Uh, and it's been amazing. And that is why we started the Puck Support Foundation. It is... You know, it's my driving force. Matthew Lazinski uh, is such a tragic story. It could have been my story easily. Um, I overdosed so many times. I'm very lucky to be alive. Um, I question it all the time. Why me? Why am I still here? Um, but I'm learning that I don't need to do that. And I just need to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that's going to allow me to maintain my recovery, but more importantly, help people. Um, in their recovery and help them find meaning and purpose like I have because I thought I was down and out. There was no hope for me. There was absolutely no hope for me whatsoever. Uh, at least I felt like that. Uh, I just wanted to die. Um, I don't know, guys. It was, uh, it was difficult, but I made it through it. And I'm so grateful that I did. And I've had so much support from everybody that's listening and supporting me. So thank you. But guys, listen, I ask with a very, very, very heavy heart. I get messages every single day of, of uh, men and women, boys and girls that are struggling or their, um, you know, their children are struggling in the hockey community, whatever, uh, with post-concussion syndrome or addiction or mental health. Uh, every single day without fail, sometimes multiple people. And I don't have the financial capabilities to, to help all these people or the places to put them, but I'm working, I'm working so hard to you know, build up the resource base and, and do all this and, and bring the foundation together along with others. There's a lot of other people working really hard, but we need everybody in the hockey community to get her, you know, to get behind this thing. Please, I ask, please, you know, get involved. 
We're gonna be transparent. This isn't helping me financially directly. When I ask for money, I hate to ask for money. Let me say that, I hate it. Makes me feel extremely awkward, but this is a little bit easier this time because I know that this needs to happen. I can't see any more headlines, guys, of former hockey players committing suicide or overdosing, or how about the headlines that aren't even there because we don't even hear about it. I'm sick of it, guys, and I hope you are too. We all love the game of hockey. We love to play it. We love to watch it. You know, we say that we're a brother and sisterhood. We're a hockey family. We really need to show that we're a hockey family, one big hockey family under the Puck Support Foundation, guys. You're more than welcome to get involved and see what we're doing. Completely transparent. We just want to help people and we want you to get involved. But we honestly, we need money to get this thing off the ground so that we won't need to ask people for $5 donations and $10 donations. But right now we have the Pucksport Foundation Gratitude Crusade going on in memory of Matthew Lazinski, guys. I'm going to post a link in the description to the GoFundMe page. Please, can you afford $5 or more? Please, guys, I ask. We need to pay the lawyers. Uh, there's trademarking fees. There's just, it seems to be endless. Uh, we need money so that we can go after government grants and get this thing incorporated and do it all the right way. Uh, but until that happens, we're kind of in a standstill. So please, guys, I just ask, can you afford $5? Take a little less for yourself today and donate to the great cause that is the Pucksport Foundation. If you're not comfortable donating to the PSF, donate to another great cause because that's what I challenge you to do, to do today. Take a little less for yourself and give a little more um, to one of the deserving causes out there. There's so many areas that need our time, our attention, our money, all of it, guys. But I feel that me, personally, I can make the biggest contribution in the hockey community through the Pucksport Foundation. And uh, I'm going to put everything I have into this. And I'm asking, please, please, I ask, we need your support. Email us, team at pucksupport.com. Or if you want to email me directly, I'm happy to give you my email address, brady at pucksupport.com. My phone number is available on all the websites. If you're struggling, reach out. I'm here. Most days I can I can talk. I'm busy sometimes with podcasting and the family and all of that, but I'm never too busy to make time for somebody that's struggling because I felt that, you know, everybody was too busy or didn't want to make time for me. And I know how that felt. Maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't. However, I don't want anybody else to feel the way that I was feeling. So please reach out, get involved, donate if you can donate. Um, like I said, I ask with a very, very, very heavy heart, um, but uh, we can get right in to episode 52. You know this episode is proudly brought to you by Team Issued Limited. Team Issued is connecting all walks of life. Team Issued does this by recreating that special feeling of being part of something bigger. A community for all striving towards the same goal. Guys, check it out. Teamissue.ca. Use promo code TOEDRAG15 to get 15% off your total purchase. That's a former teammate of mine with the Kelowna Rockets as well, Jesse Paradise. He just wrote a CPA test, Chartered Professional Accountant out at the University of Manitoba, wishing Jesse luck he gets the results in December. But in the meantime, let's support his great clothing brand, Team Issued. Um, teamissued.ca. If you're into active wear, especially like Lululemon, Under Armour, that kind of stuff, they have it all. Check it out. Men's, women's, kids, all of it. Promo code TOEDRAG15. Check it out, guys. You can follow them on social media at Team Issued Limited as well. Uh, but without further ado, let's get right in to episode 52.
How about Scott Thornton not waiting for that puck to hit the ground? He smacks it just as soon as it gets through his stick. A little sauce by Mike Ricci hits the ice. Boom. Scott Thornton's terrific release gets that puck up over the shoulder of Hashik. You know, I was talking to Scott Thornton's dad, Jack, who was in town watching his son play, and I said to him, where did Scott learn to shoot like that? Jack said, you know what? When I played when I was younger, I had a really good snapshot. I guess Scott got it from there, so Dad gets credit for that goal. Great hands by Thornton there to take it out of the air and hammer it behind Dominic Hasek. I don't care if you are one of the best goaltenders in the world, you're not getting that shot. Hey, you look at Scotty's numbers. He was awesome last year. Scott Thornton gave the Sharks all they hoped for and more last year. Well, Scott Thornton, the veteran, making his presence felt. Thornton control. Yeah, he is really good. He's already got 14 this year. 19 goals last year for this guy, Thornton. Two goals last night to get him to 14. Tucks it in front. They score! And now a fight. One, and Thornton are going at it. And Thornton got some lips in, didn't he? Pretty tough customer, but I don't know if they come any tougher than the Sharks number 17, Scott Thornton. He has not lost the will to be an awfully, awfully tough player and a gritty guy. And then Laws and Thornton start throwing it. Boy, these are two tough guys, can throw some bombs. Scott Thornton got that right hand going early. And a man behind the My time here is, uh, is pretty special. I mean, we had a great group of guys, first of all, uh, on and off the ice, you know, really kind of clicked. I look back at my time here as my best years of, of my playing career. The best, I think, acquisition free agent-wise in the NHL, at least from the standpoint of bang for your buck. Now let's learn a little bit more about Scott Thornton. All right, guys, without further ado, originally from London, Ontario, this guy was drafted fifth overall uh, the year I was born in 1987 by the Belleville Bulls. Uh, from there, he had a tremendous junior career. He was drafted third overall uh, by his home home province, Toronto Maple Leafs. I want to talk to him about that because that must have been extremely exciting uh, he was also a World Junior Champion gold medalist uh, for our very own Team Canada, which is incredible. He went on to win a Calder Cup and and long 18-year, from my count, NHL career uh, that you know saw him amass close to a thousand games, um, which he would have hit, I'm sure, uh, if it wasn't for a few different injuries and, and things that happened, of course, over. Uh, an 18-year career. Not too many guys can say they've done that. Um, pretty amazing. Now living in Collingwood, not too far from me. Thanks for doing this, Scott Thornton. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brady. 
Hey, man, uh, listen, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. And uh, I followed your career closely. Uh, I saw you lots on Rock'em Sock'em growing up and, <laughs> and things of that nature. Um, you were, you know, uh, a big guy but could play the game. But I didn't really realize that, you know, you fought all the all the big tough guys as well. Like, you know, uh, you, you played a hard hard game for a long time um how goes how goes the battle after retirement uh things have been going great um i love the area that we moved into here i really didn't have uh any sort of friends to that you know that i knew of up in this area but uh the collingwood blue mountain region up here is just super active and and uh outdoorsy which i love to do a lot of sports outside and um, and, you know, and we, we talked a little bit about moving to Western Canada when I retired and, uh, but you know, both my family and my wife's family are all here in Ontario. So it, it made sense to come back home. Yeah. And Collingwood is a, is a beautiful area. Uh, you know, you can't go wrong. I mean, I mean, I'm from, I'm from out West and, you know, I've always thought about going back home, but once I moved to Muskoka, I was like, nah, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, married to the area now. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, minor hockey. Uh, what were you like as a minor hockey player growing up? You're from London. You, you played your entire pretty much minor career there, did you not? Yeah, I grew up, born and raised there. played all the way up until Junior B. Um, I played Junior B for the London Diamonds, which was a you know pretty, pretty good organization back then. Um, you know, we didn't have – we weren't a triple-A club back then. Like, London – I just played in London. We never left town until – uh, Bantam age when they, they divided London into two quadrants, the East and West. And, um, you know, at, which I believe we were only a double A team at that point. And, uh, you know, and, and nowadays it's all, you know, it's the junior Knights and everything they have in, in London playing their triple A hockey. And, um, but it was great. We, we had, uh, a fantastic group of friends that, you know, the odd guy kind of came in and out, but we had a big core group that kind of, you know, grew up together there. Most of us played baseball together as well in, in the off season and, um, you know, just a, just a ton of fun and, and, uh, you know, still chat with some of those guys to this day, which is, which is always great to, to get back home and see some of them, uh, once in a while. <laughs> yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's nice. You, you know, we, we all make, I think those relationships and, uh, growing up, but you know, we don't all, you know, maintain them. Uh, I know I certainly haven't as, as well as I'd hope to, but you know, again, lots of time left. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you were, you were a big guy. I looked at your stats and you know, you, you tore up the O. Um, did you ever consider back then going the school route? And before you answer that, um, you didn't fight a whole lot in junior. Uh, is that something that you developed more um, into the NHL and, and why do you think you started to fight more? Uh, that's a long, um, that's a long answer. Truthfully, I, I grew up with three older brothers and I was the baby of four boys. So we were always kind of scrapping around the house. So I wasn't completely unfamiliar with throwing punches and, uh, usually defending myself around the house. And, um, you know, got into martial arts a little bit, uh, took some karate when I was, you know, between the ages of like 12 and 15 and, you know, understood kind of the proper ways to throw punches and whatnot, but, uh, it definitely wasn't part of, of, you know, my, my future. I just, uh, you know, I, I stuck up for myself and I, and I, 
more importantly, I think I, you know, I stood up for my teammates when, when I thought it was necessary. And, you know, back then it was different in, in the eighties, late eighties, when I went to junior, uh, in Belleville, um, you know, everybody kind of scrapped, you know, like it wasn't, you didn't really have like your designated tough guy and things like that. We were, I, listen, I played with Troy Crowder there, who, huh. who was arguably one of the toughest guys ever to play in the O, and, and uh, everybody has probably watched or heard about his fights with his legendary fights with Probert in the NHL. And, you know, we played against Ty Domi and guys like that, and Chris Simon, and like there was a lot of tough guys, but everybody played the game, and it was just kind of expected that you defended yourself on the ice. And, and, uh, you know, I do remember literally my opening night in Belleville as a first rounder, and and I fought uh, Bobby Babcock, who was a, a big heavyweight fighter with Cornwall. And uh, that were some of my teammates after saying, "Listen, kid, you're a first rounder. You don't need to do that. We'll do that for you." Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I thought that was absurd. I was like, nobody's going to stick up for me, like. <laughs> yeah, I can't ever see myself walking away from fights to let somebody else do that for me, and so it just kind of, you know, that became kind of the pattern. And then at some point in in the NHL, um, you, you know, you something just clicks, and and next thing you know, you have a couple good fights against some heavyweight guys or some tougher guys, and. And everybody looks at you a little bit differently. The coaches start to throw you out there. And, and when the going gets rough on the ice, you're getting sent over the boards because they know you can handle yourself. And and then it's a bit of a powder keg when you're out there. And uh, and then the fight numbers start to, to tick upward. And um, definitely times when I kind of forgot how to play the game, and, and especially my days in Montreal and, your skill kind of, kind of diminishes because your ice time drops. And, uh, and at that point, you know, sometimes you just fight just to, just to get on the scoreboard and, and it's survival. You just want to stay in the lineup and, and do something to help your team. And, and uh, you know, so became a little bit more of a steady fighter for a few years with that team. And then, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to, to get traded out of Montreal to Dallas Stars organization that had just won the Stanley Cup, and uh, and that's when when they they let me play again, and I, I found the love of just being on the ice again and, and contributing to it, you know to you know in a, in a different way than just dropping gloves. Yeah, no, and then you really you know found your stride in, in San Jose. You know you had two term like just unbelievable years, and. That's a thing. Like you had, you know, people don't maybe not know this. You had, you know, over a hundred, just over a hundred points. I think one year in the O. Like that's, you know, and we're drafted third overall. So, you know, you're you're not like, you know, even in junior, you're a first rounder, and those guys are like, hey, you're a first rounder. You don't have to do that. So even going in the NHL uh, is a question I ask a couple guys that were drafted in the first round. Did you? Uh, feel like you got more of an opportunity based on where you were drafted? Do you ever feel like that? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, it was way different. Um, you know, my my first year in Toronto, when I got there, the organization was in a little bit of disarray. Um, coaches and general managers were, were kind of getting hired and fired. And, um, 
you know, I, you know, I was third overall, um, got sent back my, my first training camp after a handful of exhibition games and stuff. And so the next year when I was supposed to make the team, I did, I stayed there for the full season until the deadline, but I only played 41 games. And, uh, I think it was 41 and sat in the press box an awful lot. Um, of course I did go away at Christmas for the world juniors that year, but, um, but man, I spent a lot of time just, you know, in the press box and getting bag seated and, you know, I lived in a hotel by, by old Maple Leaf Gardens out the back alley there. And, and I lived in a hotel until Christmas time. And, and then I moved in with my agent. Um, because I believe they were going to stop paying for the hotel at that point. But, you know, I, I think, you know, probably 10 years later, I, you know, I would have been living with a veteran or with a family or something. I mean, I just kind of, I was left on my left on my own in downtown Toronto to kind of fend for myself, and and uh, so I think all of that stuff combined um, makes it a little harder to, to kind of find your way uh, in the league, and and it definitely set me back a few years. I, I went to the minors and up and down with Edmonton for a couple of years and played some time in the minors, but it, it was probably about four years later before I really accepted myself as a pro hockey player. Um, felt like I deserved to be there. I was good enough to be there. And, uh, and that was a big mental hurdle that, that I had to just get over myself. So it was definitely took its toll on me and, and I wasn't probably ready, um, you know, my first year. And, uh, but I didn't have a ton of support outside some of the good veterans that I played with who, who were amazing. Um, guys like Wendell Clark were, you know, Brad Marsh was a godsend for me. I mean, he skated me, sat in the press box with me a lot of nights and Todd Gill and, you know, Rob Ramage. Like we had, we had a good veteran team there and those guys treated me amazingly well. Um, but I just had to figure it all out myself in the end and, and, uh, and get some confidence and, and accept myself as a pro. Yeah, that's something that's been a common thread from a lot of people that I've talked to. And though I never played any games in the NHL, I played some exhibition games. But uh, even, you know, playing in the American League, living in a hotel for a couple months there in the American League uh, before I got hurt and all that. Same thing, you know, 20, just 21 years old, uh, trying to figure it out. I was in Virginia. It was, you know, it was a depre- I was depressed just going back to the hotel every day. Um, same sort of situation. Um, and it's, you know, I don't, I don't know if they even do a good enough job preparing guys to become good pros. Like if you don't have that good, uh, veteran leadership, which I'm sure most teams do now, um, to bring guys along, uh, it can be kind of an intimidating, uh, you know, atmosphere and it can really dwindle a guy's confidence. And then a guy, a guy can get buried, even like a guy that gets drafted in the first round. So, uh, you see it all the time, you see it all the time. Right. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't know what the underlying circumstances are all the time. Uh, but you know, at that time, uh, you know, you were getting sent down, uh, you ended up winning a Calder cup. Uh, you were almost a point a game in the A, uh, and, uh, do you think that helped you in the end, uh, playing in the American League and going down there and getting that that different little bit of opportunity um, and to be maybe the guy? Yeah, no question. I mean, I well, I still wasn't the guy down there. Oh no, we had an amazing we had an amazing uh, team in Cape Breton. Um, 
you know, some, some great players on that team. I was still a third line guy in the minors. And, uh, but we, it did. I mean, I, I remember my first year in Toronto, um, I was playing and, and there was a guy on our team, Lou Franceschetti. He was, a, he was an old kind of journeyman veteran player. And he said to me one night or to a group of us that he doesn't think anybody should step right into the NHL. He thinks everybody should play in the minors. And, you know, at the time, uh, you know, I was first rounder, I was this and that. And I was like, you know, what are you talking about, man? Like, don't blame me. Cause I'm, because I'm good, you know, yeah. that kind of attitude. And, uh, but I a hundred percent believe that it molded me for, for a long career that I finally had. Uh, cause I appreciate everything, man. Like when we played in the Cape, you know, we, no offense to the people on the East coast. Cause we, we did have a great fan base there. Um, but it was, a, it was a fairly depressing town to play in. And so when I get called up, uh, man, I appreciate everything. The meals we had, the, you know, the fact that we were flying on planes instead of buses. And um, the fact that we had, you know, as many new sticks as we wanted to use and all the little things, man, you want to change your laces and your skate, go ahead and change them. Like, and I, I honestly appreciated all of that stuff for my entire career. And, and I think I owe it all. I owe my attitude to my time in the minors. Um, and so I, you know, I think Lou was right. I was a hard pill to swallow, um, getting sent to the minors more than once, you know, up and down. And, uh, but I definitely learned a lot. I learned how to be a pro and more, more importantly, I learned where I didn't want to be. I, I wanted to get out of there and, uh, and get back to the NHL as fast as I could and, and try to stay there and establish myself as a, as a big, a big league player. Yeah. And you ended up doing that in 94, 95. Uh, it was your, yeah. that was your, you know, your first full year. Uh, and you, and you know, you had a, a pretty good year. You ended up, you know, 40 or sorry, in 95, 96, I guess would be your first full year. But in 94, 95, you didn't play any games in the minors. You only played 47 yeah. games, but you had 22 well, that was points. A lockout, could, yeah. Lockout year. That was a lockout year. So we, that was the full season that year. And, uh, you know, and you're right. That was where I thought I had turned the corner. Like we were, I was playing, you know, I was killing penalties, getting some special team time and regular shifts and, um, and, you know, let me say this at Edmonton, first of all, uh, getting, getting traded after my first year in Toronto was devastating. Um, cause when you get drafted, you think you're going to play 20 years with that team. And, uh, and I went into my second training camp, um, and got traded at camp and, uh, from you know, the, that was sorry, really... from the team too, that you probably looked up to your whole life. Right. Exactly. I mean, it was Toronto Maple Police. It was amazing. Um, you know, it was a bit of a funny story. We were, I was at my hotel in Toronto at training camp and, and, uh, you know, the message light came on my hotel. We had no cell phones back then. And, and, uh, when I got the news, I was traded and then Glenn Sather called me from Edmonton. And, but we were playing against Edmonton in two days in Toronto. So Glenn just said to me, you know, stay in Toronto, um, check out your hotel, come over to our hotel. And uh, we'll see you there in a couple of days. And so literally, uh, I went to Maple Leaf Gardens and took my gear out of my room, the Leaf room, and put it in the visitors' room and, and suited up for a game against Toronto. So that was my first game. So it was a, there was a lot going on mentally then. And uh, when I went to a team that was had just won a Stanley Cup, you know, there was 
I believe there's 14 or 15 guys in Edmonton that, that were all cup winners. Um, fantastic leadership. Kevin Lowe, McTavish, Kelly Buckberger, Craig Simpson, uh, list goes on. Um, you know, the training staff there, the, the attitude of, you know, your, your ushers and the Zamboni drivers. And like, it was just such a big winning organization that it was, uh, again, the lessons I learned, you know, in my, in my time with that organization, even when I was in the minors, um, really that kind of turned me into the person I became. And I often look back on Buckberger and McTavish and Kevin Lowe, especially, and the way they treated their, their uh, profession. And, and I wanted to be like those guys. I wanted to be, you know, 35 years old and still playing through injuries the way I watched Buckberger do it. And, and, uh, you know, and so I, I owe a lot to those guys. It was a bit of a struggle for me for a couple of years. And when I finally did, um, you know, sort of establish myself there, it only lasted a couple of seasons and then I got traded again. And then you start all over again with a new team. Um, and that, that is the story that goes. And that's part of being a pro trying to figure out, you know, what to do when you, when you get traded and, 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 and again, you have to, you have to win over your coaching staff and your teammates again. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's just what happens. And the guys that adjust quickly are, are, are most successful. Yeah. And, and what was that transition like, uh, before, before I get into that, uh, I was going to save it to the end. Uh, we can, yeah. uh, you played with Joe Murphy, uh, who I actually spoke, I did. I spoke to him not too long ago, actually. Uh, and his sister. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, he's not, he's not, he's still not doing very well, but I was able to reach him and, uh, you know, I talked to his sister. I'm hoping to get an update on him soon, but you know, it's a sad story, but, um, you know, he was also on that team. I just wanted to say, um, but, uh, well, they were the highest scoring line. Uh, the one year we went to conference finals, I was just a black ace there, but, uh, Murphy, Bernie Nichols and Vinny Dafus. Um, were the highest scoring line in the NHL uh, that year in playoffs until we lost out, which was conference finals. Then, of course, Mario Lemieux and Jaeger, you know, they had one more round after that and when they won the Stanley Cup, it was awesome. But, uh, you know, JoJo was, uh, what a player he was, man. He was a wicked skater and could snipe and, um, and a super nice guy. And he was one of those veterans that treated me very, very well, um, in Edmonton as well, a real nice guy. And, um, yeah, I'm, you know, I, it was sad as we, we were all probably sad and we saw the, the spot on TV of, of where Joe's at right now and in his life. And, uh, man, we just, I, I just really hope that Joe can kind of find his way out of this, this hole that he's in. And, and I'm glad he spoke to you. I, I know a lot of guys have tried to reach out and he hasn't, a lot, a lot of people in, and uh, and, he, and he needs some help, and, and hopefully he can get it. Yeah, I, I agree, and uh, it meant a lot that I was able just to to have a conversation with him, and it was my hopes that I would be able to, you know, maintain that contact a little more than we've been able to. But you know, I'm still not giving up, and uh, again, I I have the same hopes that you do, and I'm sure everybody else listening does too, is that he can find. Uh, his way and it's not going to be easy I'm not going to sit here and say that it's going to be easy I it was, certainly wasn't easy for me and uh, I'm not and and we were in very similar situations but I think he went did he 
she's been doing it even longer than I was doing it, which can make it even more difficult to get out of. But again, not right, in, right. totally not impossible. Um, so when you got traded uh, again from Edmonton or, or signed with Montreal, you got <clears> traded <throat> to Montreal. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that like going to Montreal? Uh, I've heard different things again, um, obviously great things, but I've also heard the pressures, you know, you hear pressures of Toronto again, and then the pressures of playing in Montreal. Uh, and then some of the other things that go along with that, the party scenes and that kind of thing. Um, what was your time, uh, in Montreal, like for you personally, uh, and mentally and, and everything like that. Uh, and then obviously filtering out into your game, uh, where were you at? Yeah, Montreal was, was really tough professionally um you know let me say this first of all the city is world class the arena was world class the fans are are let me just say i think the fans are very fair they're super educated and i have no issue with fans that are hard on you when you deserve it like i honestly don't and and that kind of pressure didn't bother me um and you know even the you know the the language barrier, um, Montreal is pretty easy to get around speaking English. Um, a bunch of French guys on the team that I got along with very well. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, I kind of didn't have any issues with that. Um, my issues were just professionally, like my place on the team. And man, it's funny. I listened to your podcast with Terry Ryan and I, I played with Terry there obviously. And, um, you know, and, and gosh, man, listening to his reflection on that kind of made me uh, think a lot about what was going on with me, too. And, and man, there, there was some similar parallels there. Like, you know, I was traded for Kovalenko, who was a 32-goal scorer. And, uh, and I instantly got there, and it just seemed contentious. Like, I honestly felt like... You know, Mario uh, Tremblay was my coach at the time. And, and um, I, you know, I got to, to see Mario a lot after then and after he quit coaching. But, you know, at the time, he, he was, you know, very new to the coaching world. I respected Mario significantly for his, his play on the ice in the Stanley Cups. But, man, him and I just kind of butted heads. And, and I had never dealt with that before. I've never had any issue with any coaches I've always been kind of a likable guy in the room and always worked hard. At least I thought anyway. Um, so it was almost like they didn't scout me. That's the way I felt. I was like, man, what do these guys not know that I can actually play the game a little bit? And, and then it went from Mario to Alain Vignon, who's still coaching. And, uh, and Alain was, um, you know, he outright told me that I can't play. I'm not good enough to play in the league if I'm not fighting. And if I don't want to fight for him, then, you know, go talk to Rajon. We'll, we'll get you traded out of here. And that was kind of like I was literally playing like three and a half minutes a game. And it was really strange. Like there was all kinds of head games. Uh, you know, I I, I scored uh, back-to-back home games, scored a game winner and a game tire, um, second star in both games. We jumped on a plane the next day, went to Colorado, and I sat for 65 minutes on the bench, like not a ship. Wow. And that included the five-minute overtime, obviously. And uh, <laughs> I had no idea where you stand, right? Um, spoke to Dave King, who's my assistant at the time, and and just said, Kinger, like, what's going on? Like, you know, that's 
pretty embarrassing, first of all. But what the hell did I do wrong? And, and he just said, Thority, I, I think it's just a personality thing. You know, you in LA, I got to work it out. And, and you know, that's tough. Like, I, I was never a guy that would uh, knock on a coach's door and stand up for myself. I just, you know, and, and maybe that was a bad thing. But I just sort of took what was handed to me and and put my head down and just tried to change it that day on the ice. And, and I just felt like I was battling hard just to um, uh, battling with my own team, like not, you know, not the players, but my management and coaches. And, and it was really, really difficult. And, and uh, yeah, it was a tough four years there. Um, and, you know, I was, I was ecstatic to go to Dallas. Well, I got, I got traded to Dallas in January. And, uh, you know, I got there and in my first game, I, I had a fight. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, next day I get to the rink and Hitchcock and Wilson and those coaches called me in and, and they just said, Scott, what'd you fight for? That had nothing to do with the game last night. I said, well, I don't know. Like, that's just kind of what, you know, I thought that's kind of what you should do. And they said, no, that, that fighting is not tough on our team. Like, Tough on our team is, is finishing checks, winning puck battles, standing in front of the net, grinding it out, and uh, that's being tough. And that's the way we need you to play. And that was like a, an elephant off my back and um, and just had some wicked leadership like Joe Newendike and E. Carbono and guys like that that it all, that it all won, Kirk Mahler. Um, and it was just a fantastic uh, time with Dallas and – Brett Hall and Modano, like you name it. Like it was just amazing for me to go there and, uh, and get to play again. You know, I was playing, I got some power play time. We went to the cup finals and unfortunately we lost, but, um, but man, what a, what a six month run, um, that I have with that team and, and really set me up for the rest of my career, I think. And as far as confidence and, and ability goes. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you do get that, uh, vote of confidence, especially from a guy like Ken Hitchcock, uh, you know, and they're coming off that, that Stanley Cup win. Uh, what a relief. It sounds like Montreal was, was what a nightmare. And I don't want to sit here and go on, uh, sit here and criticize anybody personally or whatever. But, you know, I, I feel for you. Like, that's, a, that's the side of the game uh, that people don't understand. Uh, and they don't understand that this is the stuff that players go through. Uh, and I think as players... Uh, sometimes, you know, I did, I can only speak for myself going through a situation similar, maybe not in the NHL, but similar things. Uh, and it's just, you know, and you feel like you have nobody to talk to. You can't talk to anybody on your team about it. Cause you feel like you just have to suck it up. And, uh, you know, and then for me, it was like, you know, so you go home at night and I start drinking or whatever. And it's just, okay, that just was my relief or whatever. And it seemed to be like that for a lot of guys. Um, but you know, just getting to Dallas, uh, I went, actually went to Texas after, um, leaving rehab after not playing for a year and a half. And I went down and played in the minors and, um, Texas, I loved it. Um, I, I was a great hockey town. Yeah. Great, great state, great yeah. hockey town. I loved it immediately from the time I got off the plane at the airport. Um, I get, I was just like, man, this was these people, the Texans are so nice and hospitable and I had a great time there. I, I absolutely loved it there. Uh, led me in the free agency and that's why I left. But, um, you know, it's, it's a weird, <laughs> It's a weird thing. Like not all, not everything in Montreal was bad for me. I had some great times there, and, and my teammates were were amazing and supportive. Like 
you know, guys like Don Fus and, and Mark Recchi, Saki Koivu, like there was some, some Stefan Cantel and uh, Brisebois. Like there, there's a lot of really good teammates there and friends. Um, Turner Stevenson and I played a lot together um, there as well. And Turner and I really leaned on each other for support. And, uh, you, did, you know, uh, like I'm not blaming everybody else because it, it, you know, I had it in my own head. And, and confidence is such a fickle thing, man. Like, I remember practices in Montreal where I had a hard time just skating down the ice with a puck on a drill. And I'm like, where, like, when when did I become such a shitty hockey player? Like, yeah. where did this happen? And and then all of a sudden, you know, a couple months, things changes, and you're you're playing the power play in the Stanley Cup Finals. Like, it just like it's a crazy swing of emotion. And um, you know, I did my best to handle it in Montreal. I I did party a lot, and and uh, it certainly didn't help me. But at the time, that was my coping method too. And uh, you know, it's it's the way I got up to go to the rink the next day. And uh, unfortunately, when you're in that mode, you're never getting better. Like practice, you just want to survive practice. You don't want to get better. And, uh, you know, so I, I was quite happy to get out of that town and uh, young enough that I could still kind of revive my career and, and get rolling again. Yeah, and you finally got to hit free agency. Uh, and you decided, yeah, to, yeah. you decided to, after all that time and all the bullshit... Uh, finally, free agency comes and uh, sort of like a reward uh, and things ha- and you happen to, you know, get to go on a good run with Dallas, which always helps, uh, you know, you're the Dallas thing. The Dallas thing was a bit of, I don't want to call it a fluke, but there's a really kind of fun story here that um, at the end of the season in 99 in, in Montreal, of course, we went on like a, a end of the season for us. Um, so we go on like a week long, you know, end of the season party thing. And, you know, I go into the rink on a Saturday morning to, uh, to tip out the trainers and maybe grab my gear. I can't remember what I was doing. And, and uh, you know, probably a bit hung over that day. And, and, and Dave King was in the locker room and Kinger was the assistant coach on the world junior team or sorry, the world championship team. Uh, and they were about to head over to Norway. And I honestly just went up to Kinger shooting shit. And I jokingly said to him, Hey man, well, if you need any extra wingers, let me know. I'm, I'm pretty free. <laughs> and I kind of started laughing and, and King, Kinger looked at me and he goes, are, are you serious, Scott? You're like, you think you'd want to go? He goes, I actually think you'd play pretty good over there with the big ice and you're a good skater and this and that. And, and I immediately just kind of sobered off and I was like, well, of course I'd go. Like, like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, we've had a couple guys drop out. Uh, uh, Peter Nedved just called and, and dropped out. And so let me make a call and see if you can see if they, they want you. So I went home. He called me a couple hours later. Um, and literally Sunday morning, the next day, I jumped on a plane with the Toronto. I'm on the ice with the team. Sunday night, we fly over to, to Norway to go play. And I'm part of Team Canada. That's I was awesome. literally playing. I think my average ice time was three minutes and fifty-two seconds that year in Montreal. Like I totally didn't belong there. I didn't think, but went over, had a fantastic tournament. I scored a hat trick. I got, I think, I got six goals in the tournament. Um, had a great line with the point and, and Scotty Walker, and we just kind of clicked. And 
you know, a couple player of the game watches. Like just, it was just fun, right. To go over and just play the game again. And, uh, and so, you know, fast forward a year later or whatever, eight, 10 months later, when, when Bob Gainey traded for me to, uh, to Dallas, um, the first meeting I had with him, he talked about my, my tournament over in, in Europe. And so, you know, to me, just, uh, you know, a couple of fluky little things and, and I guess me jokingly asking for that had, had triggered, um, you know, uh, a bunch of good things to happen in my life after that. And uh, that's, you know, kind of a funny story, but that's kind of how I ended up in, uh, in Dallas. And, and uh, inevitably I played eight more years after that when, when I thought my career was over. What a so, yeah, kind what of, a great story! And you know what? I've talked on on my podcast several times about different things that I think um, that I would do differently, and that you know I would definitely encourage players that I was coaching or bringing up to do is is to talk to coaches more. And and like you said, you didn't go into coach's office and whatever. And and like honestly, maybe not every coach likes that. And I'm not saying do it all the time, but I definitely think that sometimes you need to assert yourself and ask like you did in that and look what happened look at the the series of things that got that happened just because you took a chance and and threw it out there for yourself and you created that own opportunity for yourself um and and look at it, it's amazing right like it's 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 yeah. incredible it's a great story i definitely think the communication thing like you know when i look back at my situation there like you know, I like we're all nice guys. I, I haven't met any bad guys in the game that at least that I can recall. And for the most part, most of the coaches or former players or whatever, they're all usually pretty good guys too. Um, there's no reason really for us to not get along. You know what I mean? So the fact that I was in that situation, you know, it should have been a sit down meeting and it should have been, Hey, like why, let's let's clear the air here like why do you feel this way about me and here's here's how i'm seeing it here's how you're seeing it clearly you think i'm a different person than i really am and that's unfortunate maybe i've maybe i've done something wrong to deserve that but hey i'm really not a bad guy um you know i want to do good for this team i want to play for my teammates and you know how do we get there like what am i doing wrong on the ice skill wise like help me work through this stuff and you know, and that's the stuff that never, ever happened, right? And, and you know, when I look back at, in particular, my four years in Montreal, I, I just wish there was way more honest dialogue and not not a lot of mind reading and just trying to figure shit out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, we got enough on our plate. Like, just trying to, you know, trying to figure it all out yourself. Like, I, I just wish I had a bit more kind of guidance that way from, from leadership, you know, they are your coaches. They, they should be helping more. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of looked at it. I, I agree 100%. And, and that even filters into junior hockey. Like, man, uh, I had a few coaches that were so intimidating, like 16 years old, Western Hockey League, they just expect you to know some shit. And I'm coming from minor hockey. Like, it's, you know what I mean? It, or junior yeah, B, where, where, you know, and it's essentially a mini NHL in, in major junior hockey. And it's, you know, 
you're just trying to figure shit out and they're getting mad at you and and the most time the first year I'm so anxious and scared like you said skating up the ice because I'm just so scared to to fuck up and it's like holy shit like and that is a thing like you said confidence is so huge it, it can be the difference of you know Man, yeah, three minutes a game and, and 20 minutes a game. And really, you're the same player, but your confidence is the only difference. That's it. And and it's perception a lot of times. It's coach's perception. Like, you, you see it. I mean, there's there's hundreds of stories and, and that we've watched where guys have have been shitty on a team and then get moved to another team and, and have career years and, or vice versa. They're, they're coming off a 30 goal year. Next thing you know, they're getting 12 and they're healthy scratch and playoffs. And yeah. you're just like, you know, it's the same player. Like what the hell happened there? You know? And, and that's a pretty common thing. And unfortunately it's such a, it's such a high level that there's not a lot of patience to be had. Right. Like they, they you know, coaches and management, I'm playing devil's advocate now. Um, they don't have the time to coddle you and, and to bring you along. Like they need to win now. Yeah. And especially in today's game um, where you can't have a night off, like every, every two points you can get in, in, in September and, and October is, is going to either make you make playoffs at the end of the year or not. So the intensity of every game and every practice now is, is multiplied and, and so for them, they, they just kind of leave it on you to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out quick enough, then you're going to be gone. Yep. And it's, uh, that happens a lot. And guys, and, and especially at the minor uh, level too, different reasons and stuff too. And guys are left with, uh, pretty dip- in a pretty depressed state. Uh, have you seen, have you seen a lot of that? Have you heard a lot of guys that, that struggle after, um, you know, dealing with things like this? Uh, for sure. Like maybe like in retirement, you mean, or just during, during their career? Both. Or a little bit of both. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, most definitely there, there's, you know, I think at any given time, there's, there's five or six players on a roster that are, that are struggling just with their own play with their, you know, their wives, their, their kids, if they're that old or, you know, shit, they got the car breaking down or they got something going on at their house or they got family issues back home or, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, they gave their buddy all their money to invest and he just blew it all at a horse track. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're 10 years into their career and they're broke. Like they're like, there's so much in, of real life stuff that never really gets, talked about or seen for guys and and uh and you know i like i said there's probably a handful of guys half dozen guys that i, that I think at any time throughout the year are are suffering mentally with with where they're, where they're at and uh um it's just you just got to figure it out quickly and, and try to ignore it and block it all away and, and show up at the rink and and, and do your job and uh and that's not an easy thing to do some guys handle it really well um, other guys don't, which are usually the guys, unfortunately, have short careers, um, you know, and then in, in retirement, uh, I think I think everybody goes through it in retirement. And, and I, by everybody, I mean, like, when my dad retires from a factory at the age of 65, like, he goes through a mental struggle or transition to try and figure out what his identity is in retiring. And, 
Um, we just have to do that at a really young age. Sometimes, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old, and everything you've done up until that point has been the hockey player. And, uh, and now you have to, to come up with a new identity and try to figure out who you are as a person, you know, and, and that's really hard in, in, uh, in transitioning into retirement for sure. Yeah, and you retired. Uh, well, we'll get into the retirement because I want to talk a little sure. bit. I want to talk a little bit just before you know we go a few more minutes here. But uh, your time in San Jose. What was the deciding factor to go to San Jose? What were your other options, and and were there other options? Yeah, there were, um, and one of them being Dallas. Um, you know, I, I was negotiating with them. Obviously, uh, you know they have. They have the first right at the end of the year, right? So they think they have about a week, if I recall, to negotiate. And um, and I would have taken a hometown discount to go back there. It just I, I couldn't. They weren't offering, you know, as close of a deal as what San Jose was offering. Um, but there were a few other teams as well that were interested, and, and it was a lot of fun actually. Like. You know, because literally like six or eight months prior to that, I, I wasn't good enough to play in the game. And, and now there's whatever, 10, 12 teams that were starting to talk to my agent. And, and you know, so then it became, okay, where am I going to fit in? What style, what style does the team play? What does the coach think of me? Like, what's he, what does he think I can do? You know, then, it be, then it's like, okay, let me pick the right mix here. And San Jose, I, I did have a good friend, Brian Marchment, who was, who was playing there. Uh, who loved it and uh, so I kind of chatted with him a little bit about like just the city and the fans and and uh, and then of course they came in with a four-year offer for me and and uh, and which sealed the deal and and then things just kind of you know clicked um, for whatever reason and Every hockey player will tell you, you just have line mates that you work with very well and you have line mates that just doesn't work and I got in training camp. I, I was paired up with Mike Reach and uh, Nicholas Sundstrom, and uh, and we absolutely just lit it up in training camp, like scoring you know three, four, five goals even in a training camp scrimmage, and like everything just worked. Like we didn't even have to to talk on the ice. We knew exactly where we were, and uh, and that was just you know a fantastic few years with that organization. Um, Daryl Sutter was was my first coach there, and uh, you know he was he was a tough coach. Um, he didn't say a whole lot, and but he was one of those guys, and he he respected me as a player. And all I needed was a little bit of a head nod of approval from Daryl, and uh, you know, and I was ecstatic. I didn't need big pat in the back, and but he would just kind of nod after a game and give me a wink or something. And I was like, okay, I know I made him proud tonight and, and, uh, and I'm in a good space. And uh, we had a good run. We, we, we really did. We built a team there. I think we had five years in a row where we set franchise records uh, and finally broke the hundred point, uh, 103 points or something we had the one year. Um, you know, unfortunately uh, we, we didn't win, obviously, uh, but we were building something really, really big there. And, uh, and the team has actually been very solid ever since. You know, uh, my cousin Joe finally, we traded for cousin Joe and I played a year with him there. And, and that team's just been been amazing to watch ever since. 
Yeah, you guys had the lockout 0405. You went to Sweden, uh, and then your yeah. last year 0506 is when uh, when uh, Jumbo came over to San Jose, and that's your that's co- right. Yeah, he's your cousin, and I knew that. Um, people probably know that, or can put two and two together. And he's had a must be something in the genes. You guys have had tremendously long, successful uh, pro careers, um, and uh, very very fortunate for for both you guys. And uh, what a, what an opportunity to get to play to to get to play with him. He must have uh, thought that was pretty cool because he probably looked up to you, no? Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, I, you know, if I could pick, you know, my top two or three things that happened in my career, playing with him, and, and in particular playing on a line with him for a while, um, was pretty special. And, you know, his dad and my dad uh, uh, are brothers. My dad passed away a year ago, but um, the brothers and, you know, our grandfather used to have two TVs in his house, one in his bedroom, one in, the, in his living room, and he'd run back and forth from TV to TV to watch us. And, um, you know, Joe's dad, my uncle Wayne and, and my dad, um, you know, I guess became very close after that. They, they traveled a little bit like on the road, they'd meet in Nashville and, you know, come to watch our games in Detroit together. And it was amazing. And, and for me, Joe's 10 years younger than me. So, um, he was baby Joe when I left, you know, left London to go play junior hockey. And uh, so it was, it was really good for me to play with him and get to know him as a, as an adult and, and as a, as a star player in the game. And, and I learned a lot playing on his line, like, and you'll appreciate this. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's coached by your teammates on the bench, quietly on the ice, like things that they'll tell you to do and areas to go to and, um, and, and Joe taught me so much uh, when I was playing with him that, you know, he just put his head down on the bench and say, hey, why don't you go here? Just do this and roll off here. And um, and that's stuff that nobody knows except for him and I. And and, uh, and it just, wow. it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, as, as far as the longevity goes, I mean, um, you know, I had a lot of fun. Um, and, and I think Joe is anybody that's played with Joe will know, like he's the biggest kid in the locker room and, um, he loved to come to the rink every day, loved to have fun, loved to joke with the players. And uh, that I think is, is what creates a long career. Like you have to, you have to enjoy coming there every day. And, uh, and, and the guys that don't enjoy it and don't have a ton of fun, they, they get pushed out pretty quickly. And, you know, I, you know, Joe, hopefully because of COVID and all this, I don't know if he's going to come back. You never know. Um, he talked about starting the year over in Europe potentially and, and just to get a head start on the NHL. And, you know, I think that guy will play at least 45 if they keep signing him. <laughs> so, no you know, I love it. I hope he does. Yeah. And I want, excuse me, I wanted to give a, I was, I'm, I'm sorry that you lost your dad last year. I put it. Put that in the intro because I just had my dad, my dad on the last two episodes um, and our relationship has just been terrible these last 10 years. So it's been really nice that uh, we've been able to reconnect. So that's why I did that. But that's really nice that uh, I heard he, that. Yeah, yeah thank you. That, that was neat. That was really nice that your your dad was able to travel with his brother and, and get to watch his, his son and his nephew. And then, you know, your uncle and all that. How cool is that? Like, that's pretty amazing. You know what I mean? Like to, to do that and, and to to get to watch at the NHL. So a lot of great memories, I'm sure. And uh, 
yeah what an what an amazing story it is it's pretty crazy uh not too many guys extended extended family too i mean we you know cousins and aunts and uncles and and all of our brothers like joe's got two brothers i've got three brothers and um you know like i think it was great for the entire thornton family which is a pretty big family around the london st thomas area and uh you know so for all of them i think it was it was pretty special and and uh but yeah it definitely definitely one of the highlights of my career and and uh you know i love it i i, I really get excited when i get to see joe um you know whether i go back to san jose to, for a little visit which i did this, this past year or quick golf game in the summer or something i, I just enjoy his company and uh and uh yeah i hope he i hope he continues i'd love to see him win a cup oh, uh, yeah. he deserves it after all these years and uh you know i'd gladly go and drink out of the cup at his party <laughs> for sure um you went from san jose to to la uh for a couple of years and uh then in 0708 uh you decided to hang him up was that a pretty easy decision after 18 years i know it wasn't probably the easiest but uh were you pretty like were you pretty uh happy though after that because you know if you think back to where you were at uh at 20 21 and then especially to your times in montreal um wow right like uh, you know you get to go through that time with san jose and and all that now to la uh a little bit of time over in sweden uh, and you wrap up your career in 0708. What was your mindset like then? Um, I, I was ready. I mean, uh, you know, I remember talking to Gary Suter in, in San Jose when, when Gary was a veteran player, a really nice leader, a good guy. And uh, he retired and then he would come back the odd time. And of course, I'd corner him in the locker room somewhere. I'd be asking him about retirement. And I said, how did you know you were done? Like, how do you know? And he goes, ah, your body will just tell you. And, you know, when I was in L.A., you know, I'm, I'm still obviously I'm competitive, so you're still fighting for ice time. And, you know, Mark Crawford and I were kind of battling because I wanted to play more, and, you know. And, but, you know, like the writing's on the wall. Like I've slowed down. I, but I was in a lot of pain. I had a lot of back issues. And, um, you know, Dean Lombardi was my general manager in LA. He's the one who brought me down there. And, uh, and he was also my general manager in San Jose. Right. So we had a good relationship and, uh, Dean called me in trade deadline my last year, a couple days before the deadline. And, uh, and he, uh, and he said, listen, I, I think I might've traded you. I, I had a no trade clause, but, um, cause I was 38 years old. I just didn't want to move. Right. But he, uh, he said, I think I got you traded to Pittsburgh. Um, they're looking for a guy like you and they want to do a good playoff run. And, um, what do you think? And I said, you know, can you give me 24 hours to think about this? And of course he didn't, he, he was shocked and he's like, what do you mean 24 hours? Like you got a chance to go win a cup and you play with Crosby and this and that. And, and I said, yeah, I just need some time. And, and so I went home with my wife and you know, I have two kids or two kids at the time that were fairly young and, and, uh, and my body was beat up. I was taking a lot of cortisone shots in my back, just trying to keep me in the lineup. And, um, I, I went in and, and met with Dean and I, I said, you know, I, I, Dean, I, I love that you're trying to do this for me and I appreciate it and I get it, but, um, I have to decline. Like, I, I think I'm done. I don't know if my body can take a playoff run. Um, and I just don't want to be away from my family for three or four months. And, uh, 
and I think I'll just play out the season here and, and that'll be it for me. And so, yes, I, I knew I was done. Um, you know, I, I basically wrote a script for myself that most people don't have, which is uh, my last two home games, uh, you know, last two games of the season, we missed playoffs in LA and, and knew it. And uh, so I flew out um, all my brothers and my nephews and my parents and, um, so we, I had about, I don't know, 16, 17 people at the last two home games. And, uh, we had a little bit of a party, like a family party at the end of game 82 and a bunch of my teammates all came and, um, you know, it was, it was the perfect script. I, I left, uh, very content. I, I knew that I had milked my career for as long as I possibly could. And, and it was time to move on and, and step aside. And so that I'm very grateful that it happened that way. Yeah, well, you're very, uh, very lucky. But again, I think, you know, you obviously put in a lot of hard work behind the scenes. um, And, uh, you know, you had a a long, successful career. Is there anything looking back that maybe you did um, that, you know, you can be like, okay, maybe that was the the reason or that's the characteristic that that allowed me to, to stick around for so long? Um, is there one thing you can pinpoint it to or, or what is it you think? Cause not, not, not too many people can do that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I have thought a lot about this over the years and I mean, I'm going to, might sound kind of funny, but it's, it's not even on the ice. It, it's fitness. And I got sent to the minors in Edmonton and, uh, back then they always said, we're going to send you down for conditioning. And I went, you know, of course, I, I went to the minors in my very first game. Um, a couple of guys said, oh, yeah, how, how long are you going to be down here? And I was like, oh, they just said two weeks, two weeks conditioning. And and uh, and they literally went around the room. I remember it was Dan Curry, and he said to, like, three or four other guys, he's like, hey, you know, Sean, like, how long ago did you get sent down for two weeks? And he's like, oh, yeah, that was four years ago. And then. Went to the next guy and, you know, when did you get sent down? Oh, that was five years ago. I got sent down for two weeks and never went back and, and went around the room and I was like, oh shit. Okay. This is, this is, this is it, man. I'm, I'm buried. Um, so when I did get called back up, I just kind of 100% dedicated myself to, to fitness. I wanted to be like the most fit guy. And, and I said, if you send me down, like you'll never send me down to, for conditioning again. If you send me down, it's because I'm not good enough to play here. But, uh, you know, it ain't going to be because I'm out of shape. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of set a tone for me that I was going to be a hardworking player. And I was going to come to camp and I was going to be one of the top, you know, top fitness guys in training camp every year. And start to check boxes where, like, eliminate all their options. Right. And that's basically what I wanted to do. I was like, you know, they're going to look at me and it's hard to yell at a good guy. It's hard to yell at a guy that's trying really hard. It's easy to yell at somebody that's a loaf or not trying or lazy. And so I, I kind of recognized that at a young age. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to make it really hard for these guys to get mad at me and really hard for them to send me down. And, uh, you know, that, so that was a, a big thing for me. Fitness became my tool. Um, it became something where when I, when I lined up on the ice, I knew that I was in better shape than the guy I was against. And, uh, and that gave me a bit of self-confidence that, 
that I needed when I was young and, and in that situation. Um, you know, and then, you know, I, one other big kind of turning point for me, and it was, again, to go back a little bit on the whole mental aspect, like uh, Glenn Sather sent me to the minors. Um, I think it was my third year with Edmonton. And, uh, and I had the right to refuse, like in the collective bargaining agreement, if you didn't have a certain number of games, I think it was like 100 games played after three years, the, in order to send you down, you have to clear waivers. And so uh, Glenn sent me to the minors and, uh, and I refused to go. <clears throat> and so, of course, he was livid. And he goes, I need to see you in my office tomorrow morning at 7. And my agent called. He's like, what the hell are you doing? And, and I said, no, I'm not going down there. Like, I go, it's just a huge party. And it's the worst thing you can do to me right now. I can't go down there. I'm going to be drunk for 14 straight days. And my game's going to go for shit. And I'm playing well. Like, I, I literally thought I was playing well in Edmonton. Yeah. And uh, and that's what I told Sazer the next day. Uh, we had a huge meeting. Obviously, it's way before the team shows up for practice. And Glenn was intimidating, man. Like, he, he had a lot of years and, and walked around with a cigar in his mouth and who the hell do you think you are? And, you know, he literally threatened my career. He said, you know, I've got 17 years of, at the time, I've got, he's still going, but you got 17 years of connections in this game. If you think I can't send you to the minors, he goes, I get on the call tomorrow. I call every GM in the game. And you'll never see the ice again in the NHL. And, uh, and so he goes, I'm going to let you get away with it this time, but you don't take a practice off. You don't take a shift off. I watch practice from my office up there every day. You better be the hardest working guy on the ice. And, you know, it basically scared the shit out of me. Wow. And it did two things. It, it made me, you know, for me, I had to do that. I had to accept myself as a pro and I had to stand up for myself. And I was right. I really wasn't, I really didn't need to go to the minors. I was just easy to move. And I was one of the guys that could go up and down. And so they need to send a message to the rest of the lineup. So they're gonna, they just got to send somebody down. All I said, send authority down. And uh, and that was the first time I kind of stood up for myself and said, no, like I'm, you're not sending me down. Like I'm a pro. I, I should be here. I'm playing. I'm playing well. I, I deserve to be here. And and uh, and never went to the minors again after that. And it was it was like standing up to the bully in the schoolyard, you know, and and. Uh, uh, you know, for me, it was it was just a big. Um, it was a risk. It was a huge risk, but um, but it was just and 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 uh, and I was honest. I didn't. I wasn't bullshitting. I, you know, and and I had some confidence in myself at the time, and and, and it helped build even more confidence. And you know, those are just a couple things that I that I recall early in my career that that I think kind of set the tone a little bit for my survival, I guess, in the game. Absolutely. So before I let you go, I just have one more question. And it's like, we have so much more to talk about. You don't live far. It's my hopes that one day uh, in the near future, you can get up here once the studio is done, we could sit down and do like an in-house pod part two of some sort. Uh, For you know, sure. You yeah. know, when you have some free time and down the road in a, in a month or two or whatever, come down, play some hockey on the lake and that I live on and, and all that. So, um, but before I let you go, I need to ask you if you're left or right-handed. 
left-handed. I thought so. Me too, because I was like, <laughs> but you switch hands in a lot of your fights where it was like, I was like, wow, I'm like, yeah, he's left-handed. But then all of a sudden I started seeing some fights where you're throwing rights just as hard. And I'm oh, like, sorry. In fighting. Yeah. In no, fighting. Um, I, right, I'm right-handed by nature. Um, but I, I just learned to throw both ways. And, uh, and I, and I just use that. Um, I just, <laughs> you know, back in the day there was, it was like, you know, cowboy fighting. There was no defense. And, uh, so just whatever hand I could get free, that's the one that I threw. And I always kind of believe that if you're on offense, then you don't have to be on defense. So I just threw as hard and fast as I could with both hands. And, and I would just literally try to surprise guys in fights. And, and uh, you know, as you know, when you do your homework on, on fighters, like, you know, their tendencies. Yeah. And so I just didn't want to have tendencies. I, I just wanted <laughs> to be a little, <laughs> I just wanted to be a little bit unpredictable and it doesn't, doesn't always work out, man. Like you, I definitely got hit a lot and, uh, you know, you pay the price for that, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah, we didn't, we didn't get, we didn't get into the whole concussion thing. We'll save that for next time uh, about, it's a topic that we could talk about forever and, uh, I'm sure you suffered many of them, but, uh, I could have clipped, you know, uh, for that intro, I could have made it a lot more about the fighting and stuff. But at the end of the day, um, you were a hell of a player. And, uh, you know what I mean? And uh, that, to me, is, you know, your, you know, your legacy of appreciate an NHL player is not as not a fighter. You like you. That's why I asked you right off the hop was my was my curiosity. Was that like because you are you were a skill like a big guy that could play and could skate and uh and then you could also fight too so that i think you know that was you know you never got lost in that and that was that that's a big thing is that you just learned how to play a complete game you know like a a real complete game which not too many guys do anymore with like the whole fighting and everything you know yeah no well i certainly appreciate that and and and, uh you know we what people don't understand is is you know, the fourth line in the NHL were probably all of them were probably stars in minor hockey. Um, you know, a lot of guys were 30 goal scorers in junior that then played three, four minutes pro. And, uh, like, you know, you have to skate at that level. Like what people don't understand that that haven't played the game is how hard it is just to practice at that level every day. And to keep up on the ice, like you need to be able to move with those guys and, and uh and handle pucks and passes and like you know the you know you name it like down the line for any heavyweight tough guy you look back at their minor hockey and, and they're all good players oh, like, yeah. there's probably an exception here and there um, but for the most part guys can all play and you know it, it is uh and i was laughing when you, when i was listening to the intro and i was thinking the same thing i'm like geez he's got a lot of goal scores there because anybody that looks me up on YouTube, there's no goals. It's all fights, and and I, I've often thought, man, I should just start pushing my own YouTube channel with more goals. Because people don't even know that I played the game outside of fighting. And you know, it's kind of I get a good chuckle out of it with people. But um, yeah, it is the way it is. It's uh, you know, I, I another quick story. You know, I know we got to go, but no, we don't. We can talk. Um, I was letting you go because uh, I thought you got to go. In Montreal, um, uh, Craig Rive was was a was a high prospect defenseman that came up and and 
and Riv and I, I used to drive him to the rink and back and games and stuff. And, and Craig was a tough kid. And, uh, but he was, I think Craig was first rounder, if not second rounder. And, uh, and he could play the game and went on to have a great career, but you know, he had some fights and he was starting to do pretty good in these fights. And, uh, and they were coming a little bit more regular and I, and I remember driving him home one night and I said, Riv, I go, I, I love you, man. Like you're tough, but I go, just be careful. Like you're one of these nights, you're going to step up into a weight category that you don't belong in and uh, you're going to get hurt. And, uh, and sure enough, it happened to Riv. Like he, he got, he got knocked out in a little bit of a line brawl with by Brant Myers and knocked out cold. And, uh, and I remember Riv saying to me a couple of days later, he's like, man, you were right. And and I was like, you just, you fall into this pattern. Some guys do, right? You fall into this pattern where, you know, you get, your gloves are just dropping easier than they used to and start stepping up with some tougher guys. And, and then next thing you know, people just look at you a little bit differently and they start to forget that you can play the game a little bit and, and it overshadows your skill and you start to get labeled a little bit and, and, uh, you know, I, I think that happened to me a little bit, and I'm sure it's happened to a lot of different guys. Um, Terry Ryan talked a little bit about that uh, in, in, in his podcast with you. And, and uh, you know, and, and to, to Craig Rivet, to his credit, he, I'm certainly not trying to take credit for his turnaround. Like, the guy's an amazing player. But I, I just remember that moment and thinking, you know, because it's a reflection, right, of what I just went through. For a couple of years and I was like man don't don't it's a slippery slope and you get going down that path and it's really hard to dig yourself out of it and uh and just start getting respected as a player again so um yeah it just happens next thing you know you're scrapping 15 or 20 times a year and and uh kind of forget who you were when you came into the game yeah and it happens quick Craig Rivet by the way was drafted 68th overall in 1992 so um, oh, okay, there you go. Sixty-eight. Yeah. I thought he was higher than that. Yeah, but, that well, that, that would have been. Yeah, yeah, just outside second round. Then, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, yeah. He played. He played almost a thousand games as well. So. Yeah, captain of a couple teams, and yeah, hell of yeah, a, great hell career. Of a career. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Well, um, you know, yeah. I uh, I look forward to the uh, to the day when uh, we can do some fishing or skate on the lake or whatever man just shake hands sit down and do part two of this because we got lots to talk about um and uh look forward to that day like i said but uh, i truly appreciate all the stories uh and your time man uh i really i really enjoyed it absolutely thanks for having me on and yeah mostly get through this covid thing and, and we'll get out and cast a line in your lake and catch some bass and um but yeah keep it up man i i, I you know um uh, Kind of followed your story for the last little bit since we've started chatting and uh you've been through a lot and i'm glad to see you're you're moving in the right direction and, and i love the podcast format of media i listen to a ton of them I, I think they're they're a great way to educate people in long form answers i guess and uh rather than little highlights in, in newspapers and and tv clips and uh so i love what you're doing i love that you're expanding your foundation trying to help others and uh and, and reinventing yourself, man. It's all about reinventing yourself. And it's, uh, I, I look forward to following your journey in the future. All right, Thorny. Thanks, man. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, buddy. Take all care. Right. Have a good night. We'll talk soon. Thanks. 
Well, guys, that's it. That's episode 52 of Hockey to Heroin, The Road to Recovery. What a great, great episode. What a cool guy, eh? Um, what a career. A couple of great stories. Doherty, man, thanks for sharing that. Not only with me, but with everybody that listens. Um, wow, guys. Wow. Another one in the books. Um, I am so lucky. I'm so lucky. You know, I grew up watching Scott Thornton, you know, idolizing him and, and some of these other guys that have been on the podcast. And not too long ago, I was down and out, down and out. And I've been able to, uh, to really pull myself together. And though I had to do a lot of it on my own, I certainly couldn't have done it uh, without support of many, especially those close to me, like Taylor and my dad and all Taylor's family and my family, my mom, everybody. Um, but everybody that supported me through the podcast and social media, listen, thank you so much. And to everybody that's been a guest, wow. Um, I never thought I would have conversations with, with some of these guys, <laughs> most of them, even some of the ones that I knew beforehand. Uh, but certainly not guys like Scott Thornton. Um, you know, I look to him uh, for guidance, you know. Uh, he's he's uh, doing some pretty awesome things that we didn't get to um, but you know I look forward to part two uh, with Scott Thornton and also many more episodes uh, with other former NHL guys uh, and others that didn't play in the NHL uh, this episode happened to be more about hockey and his hockey career and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it I really did um, and I hope you guys did too um, please, guys, wherever you're listening, subscribe, like, all that good stuff. Follow me on social media at Hockey to Heroin, at Hockey to Heroin Podcast, at Puck Support, and at Gratitude Crusade. I've revamped the Gratitude Crusade, guys. Now it's on a picture format. So, guess what? If you get nominated and you don't do it, it's $25 to the Gratitude Crusade on the GoFundMe page in Matthew Lazinski's name. And all the money raised will be put towards startup costs, which never seem to end. And when I ask, guys, I hate to ask for money, but this needs to happen. Please, guys, even if you can just afford $5, it goes a long way. And every single person that donates uh, through the GoFundMe page, you will be, um, uh, you know, forever uh, put on the Matthew Lazinski Wall of Gratitude. Um, you'll be there uh, on the Wall of Gratitude, which will be located in the Matthew Lazinski Memorial Studio up here in Utterson. And it's not about your dollar contribution. Uh, that will not be included uh, on the Wall of Gratitude uh, because every dollar raised uh, is equally valuable in the initial startups. Because guess what? If you donate to the Gratitude Crusade, Essentially, you are one of the builders of the Puck Sport Foundation, and that's pretty incredible. So thank you so much, guys. I'm going to post the link in the description. If you want to donate, guys, please do. Can you afford $5? Can you take a little bit less for yourself today? Maybe don't go to Tim Hortons. Don't go to Starbucks. Please donate to the Puck Sport Foundation. And if you don't want to donate to the Puck Sport Foundation, I challenge you to donate $5 or more to another great cause because there's so many out there that not only need our money, but need our time and our attention, guys. Uh, but guess what? There's hope. There's hope. 
Um, it's all about just surrounding ourselves with good people and staying positive um, and being grateful. It's all about being grateful. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, that's the way that I'm living my life. And uh, I said it in the beginning, it's not always easy. Uh, there's days when I struggle for sure. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I have to use drugs or alcohol or blame other people uh, or even sit in my misery uh, because I know if I do that, um, you know, I end up in handcuffs or homeless or um, I'll end up dead because my addiction takes over and uh, I never want to go back there, guys, and I won't go back there. And if you're struggling, um, I promise you that no matter where you're at, that there is hope and that there's people that care. I'm one of them. If you're listening to my voice right now, I care. Um, you're taking the time out of your life to listen to my podcast. And I truly, truly appreciate that because every second that we're alive is valuable. Uh, life is very precious. Uh, and I treat my life that way. I never used to. I went through my life, especially the last 10 years, especially, especially the last five, not caring. Not seeing my kids, not playing hockey, not talking to my family, not talking to my friends, um, and ended up in jail, homeless. You guys know the story, and uh, I had to make some major changes. I didn't think it was possible, so if you think it's not possible, I understand completely. You might think I'm full of shit. I get it. I would have thought I was full of shit too if I was listening to myself not too long ago, but I'm here to tell you that it can be done. But it's up to you. It's up to you. But guess what? You're going to need some help. And I'd love to help. But if you don't want me to help, um, please reach out to somebody. Um, because suffering alone is certainly not okay. It's not okay with me. And uh, I can promise you suffering alone does not make anything better. Um, and if you're in addiction or suffering through a mental health crisis, um, you know, I really encourage you to reach out. There's no shame in reaching out. In fact, um, it's a very courageous and bold thing to do. And I think it'll be the best decision uh, you'll ever make. And uh, I'll be very proud of anybody that reaches out and accepts the help that they need and that they deserve. Because that's what I'm doing continually, uh, going through the different levels of uh, therapy that I'm in. Um, that I've shared on through other episodes. Um, I'm grateful that I have outlets and have the supports of, of different people, not just including friends and family, but other people through medical um, facilitations and things of that nature. And that's because I reached out and asked for help. It wasn't easy, but I did it. And uh, it's helped save my life. And it's definitely helped me stop using drugs. And that means that I'm going to be able um, to set myself up to have a very, very good life um, for myself, for Taylor, and for all of our kids, which include Brooklyn and Brody, Hadley Lincoln, and baby Veda, which is on the way. And one day I hope it will include my son, which I can't name, um, just due out of respect to the mother and to him because I've never met him. Um, I long for that day. Um, but those are decisions that I made uh, that I have to live with. Um, but it's my hope um, that Brooklyn and Brody come back into my life very soon. I'm uh, living in so much pain every single day um, as each moment passes that I'm not in communication with them. 
Um, it rips my heart. It truly does, but I keep going. I have to keep going because if I don't, there's no chance I'll ever get them back in my life. Today is Wednesday, September the 16th. Happy birthday, Brody, Ron, Leavold. My son, you are 11. I love you and Brooklyn so much more than you could ever know. And I just, I pray that the day you guys come to Muskoka and I can show you my life and introduce you um, to everybody. And honestly, guys, doesn't matter. There will always be a spot for you in our house. If you ever want to come, please, the door is wide open. I love you guys. Um, your dad is okay today, and I will be. And uh, please, you know, I'm here. I'm not sure if you're listening, but, you know, I wrote letters while I was in jail. They were returned to sender. Uh, I've done lots of things, and, uh, you know, I've made some some unfortunate choices that I have to live with, but I've never stopped loving you guys, and uh, I'm here, and, and Taylor is too, and we want you guys in our lives. I've been asked not to talk about this, but I can't do, I can't take it anymore. I love you guys. I miss you. I will do anything, anything in my power to get you guys back in my life, and that starts with taking a hair follicle drug test uh, at my ex Brittany's request which I have no problem doing because I know that I've been clean and sober for almost seven months. Happy birthday, Brody. Brooklyn and Brody, I miss you. I love you. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Please, like I said, if you're struggling, please, please reach out to somebody, if not to me, to somebody else. And if you're not having a good day, change your attitude, change your perspective, and it's up to you. Remember, have a great day if you so choose.